Tonight's Ideas programme was originally broadcast in June 1987. Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and our programme this evening, the first of two, is called Heroic Measures, Dilemmas in the Care of Sick Children. Its subject is a painful one, the lives and deaths of critically ill infants and the questions their treatment poses for parents, for doctors and nurses, and for society. We'll be talking about the technology which has made it possible to save smaller and smaller babies, babies even smaller than one kilogram, or just over two pounds. It is now our expectation that at least half of the babies between 600 and 700 grams would survive. Some of the, a smaller proportion of babies even smaller than that, between five and 600 grams survive. And occasionally one sees a baby of less than 500 grams who survives. We'll look at the pain that parents feel, cut off from an infant in intensive care. My instinct was to grab this baby and run. A couple of times I even said to the nurses, what would you do if I just took my baby and ran out of here? And she said, well, every alarm in the place would go off because of all the monitors, and, and of course we would stop you. But that was my instinct. My instinct wanted to grab my baby and run and be alone with him and to comfort him, to be a mother to him. We'll consider the difficult choices facing the nurses and doctors who care for these babies. Some children we know end up with serious handicaps and their lives certainly appear to be painful and their parents' lives appear to be very painful too. And when we see those circumstances as a result of our interventions with intensive care, it causes us great pain and we'll present the results of some hopeful research, suggesting that it may be possible for mothers to be more involved in caring for their premature babies. The first mother, she had a baby 760 grams, and uh, after the examination, the physician just tucked the baby inside her blouse, and she went outside the door, and I was confused. I said, what will happen now? And... Uh, the doctor said, well, she will take one of the city's buses home to her village in the mountains. And I couldn't believe it. Issues in the care of premature babies, tonight on Ideas. Our series is written and presented by David Cayley. Nine years ago, my wife Yuta and I had a premature baby. She weighed just over two pounds at birth, and she spent the first three months of her life in an intensive care nursery, lying alone, in the arms of a mechanical mother. Our premature baby was both a beneficiary and a victim of technology. For most of those three months, Yuda and I lived there with her. It was an unforgettable experience because we were living so close to the border between life and death. And for me, it was also an inspiring experience because the emotional risk we took on this tiny girl with baggy skin and hands the size of my thumbnails was in the end very richly rewarded. And yet, it was also a disturbing and embittering experience, because we often felt cut off from the care of our own baby, excluded from decisions, and deprived of the opportunity to share with the nursery staff our understanding of what was going on. At the end of those three months, we took home a healthy baby. But we also took home a lot of questions about neonatal intensive care, questions about the rights of parents, about the uses and abuses of technology, and about the way in which it sometimes overwhelms human needs. 
It is these questions which form the basis of tonight's program. The neonatal intensive care unit at Shadok McMaster Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. It was here, two and a half years ago, that Jean-André Levesque lived out his short life. He was 14 weeks premature and weighed less than a pound and a half at birth. His mother, Gaylene Levesque, had had two previous stillbirths, and when she went into premature labor, she had few hopes. I didn't expect him to be born alive. But at the moment of birth, I heard a tiny little cry. It was just like a newborn kitten mewing. And I just sat up and I said, my baby. And the doctor said, yes, it's a boy and he's alive. Then the neonatal people just whizzed in. Uh, I felt like they were on air or on wheels or something, like robots. They just covered from head to toe and just brushed in and, and grabbed the baby and went over to a table and started working on him. And, um, and they kept talking to each other. And, and the doctor who, who delivered him said, oh, they're having trouble. He's so tiny, they can't find a tube small enough to go down his nose. And I couldn't see them because they surrounded him totally. But there was a window. And I could see the reflection in the window. And all I could see were these robots. <laughs> and this tiny little leg, as big as maybe my little finger, kicking up and down, up and down. And I thought, you know, there's life there, there's life. It was just so thrilling. And then they whisked him out and told me I'd be able to see him in about an hour. And then they took us back in about an hour to see him. And suddenly there he was with his arms and his legs pinned down and with tubes coming out and monitors stuck all over. And his almost his entire face was covered because he had tubes down his nose and, and the bandages covered his upper lip and right under his eye. And, and we walked in there and I looked at him and the nurse said, oh, his eyes are still fused together. He can't open them, yet he's too young. And we listened to what they said and then I leaned over and I said, hiya, baby, mommy and daddy are here. And he opened his eyes and looked right at us. Oh, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was quite a battle for him to open his eyes. You could tell they were still kind of fused because he, he was pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling until finally they just sort of opened, you know. And I guess it was pretty exhausting because then he sort of closed them. And then the doctors and nurses kept talking. And my husband and I moved to the other side of the, of the isolate. And we both said something. And he tried to turn his head towards us and tried to open his eyes again, his little forehead all wrinkled up. It was amazing. In spite of all the voices around him, he still knew our voices. And he was our baby. It was, it was exciting. It was exciting. A neonatal intensive care unit is an extraordinary environment. It is bright, hot, noisy, crowded, and dominated by machines. Something out of science fiction is how two Boston-area pediatricians recently described it in a new book called Premature Babies, A Different Beginning. A combination of sensory overload and sensory deprivation, they say. For Galen Levesque, the hardest part was separation from her baby, and she was convinced that it was the same for him. When I saw him lying there, I had to, I had to cry because... I knew that's not where he belonged. He belonged inside of me still. And if he had to be out, 
I had the most incredible, overwhelming urge to pick him up and to, to take off my gown and to hold him next to my heart, to let him feel the warmth of our love and the security. And instead, all I could do was lean over this, this, this isolate and between the tubes try to, try to reach him. And when he looked at me, there, <laughs> I, it sounds uh, like I'm romanticizing it, but when his eyes opened towards mine, I could just feel like our souls were meeting, but he knew that's not where he belonged either. He was a very active baby, and, and they discussed the possibility of paralyzing him in order to force his body to relax. But he was fighting. I mean, it was almost, you know, the instinctual animal thing of fighting. He knew that's not where he belonged. He knew that's not how he belonged. I felt total instinctual needs after his birth, and I know that he felt incredible instinctual needs for me, too. The separation of mother and baby and the substitution of technology for the mother's body virtually define neonatology. The first premature nurseries were described by the American pediatricians Marshall Klaus and John Kennel as fortresses protected from innovations, investigations, and parents. As late as 1970, only one-third of all American premature nurseries were open to parents. This began to change only with the discovery that premature babies were more frequently abused than other children, which suggested that parents became estranged from their children while they were isolated in the nursery. This was one of the lines of research which eventually led to the now accepted concept of bonding. Researchers also discovered that the risk of infection the reason why the nurseries had been closed in the first place came from within the hospital and not from outside it. Doctors and nurses, it turned out, were far more likely than parents to transfer infections to the babies. And so the premature nursery opened its doors. Parents were encouraged to visit, to touch their babies, and even to hold the older ones outside their incubators. At the same time as this was happening, a technological revolution was also taking place. In the early premature nurseries, very little was actually done for the babies. Modern technological treatment began to evolve only after World War II. First oxygen began to be used, then blood transfusions to control jaundice. Later came intravenous feeding and the mechanical ventilator or respirator, a machine that actually can breathe for the baby. From the 1960s on, the neonatologist armamentarium evolved with astonishing speed, and today virtually every aspect of the baby's bodily existence can be intensively managed. Over this period, the survival of very low birth weight babies has increased quite remarkably. The Hammersmith Hospital in London, England, now reports a survival of 77% for babies between 500 and 1,000 grams, or roughly 1 to 2 pounds, and 91% for babies between 1,000 and 1,500 grams. Other hospitals report similar results. And though a direct connection cannot be proved, it seems likely that a lot of this improvement is the result of better intensive care. But there have been costs to this progress. Medical learning, like any other kind, is trial and error, and some of the errors have been terrible. The classical example is the uncontrolled use of oxygen, which led to a virtual epidemic of blindness amongst premature babies in the 1950s. 
Dr. Andrew Whitelaw directs the neonatal nursery at the Hammersmith Hospital in London. Oxygen was thought to be such a natural and obviously good substance that nobody questioned its potential for um, evil at the time. And any doctor who thought uh, that one should be cautious and, and not administer it uh, generously was, was criticised. Um, however, it seems no doubt uh, that... Uh, the uncontrolled use of oxygen did result in many babies being blind. And I think that has taught us that any intervention with sick and small babies needs to be carefully evaluated both for benefit and for disadvantage, and that even things which appear to be logically good, uh, you could even quote the example of mother's milk, uh, one needs still to look at the evidence objectively and see, well, how much good does it really do, and uh, base one's uh, management on that. There is now a movement within perinatal medicine generally to do what Dr. Whitelaw suggests is necessary, subject common procedures to careful risk-benefit analysis. But this is not always easy to do. People don't necessarily like facing up to the fact that medicine is experimental, and many common treatments remain incompletely evaluated or performed for reasons other than proven benefit. Neonatology has also run into many vexing ethical questions to which there is no objective answer. For example, the question of when to stop treatment. Bill and Gaylene Levesque faced this issue very early in their son's life when he suffered a severe brain hemorrhage, a complication probably caused by the respirator which might result in serious brain damage. They had to ask themselves whether intensive care should continue. I said, you know, you're doing so much to him, and we didn't want such heroic measures. We wanted to allow something of nature to take place. And so we, what we asked them to do was not to take him off the respirator, because we knew that would mean certain death, but not to treat... We wanted to see which way things would go. Either he would start getting better or start getting worse, and that that would lead us to making the right decision or, or guide us in some way. And they agreed to that. The thing is, my husband and I sat and talked for three hours straight before we came to that decision. There were an awful lot of things to take into consideration. It's not an easy decision to come to. They came in, and we talked to them for about an hour about it, and they agreed that was going to be fine. That afternoon, I was in the nursery watching my baby, and uh, they started giving him a drug. And I said, what is that drug for? Oh, we're, he's got a kidney problem, and we're treating it. I said, well, I thought I asked that no treatment be given for anything until you discussed it with us, because we wanted to see, oh, no, this is routine. Well, then before we knew it, reviving him when he had, was obviously dying was routine. Giving him all of these drugs for these different ailments were routine. and. They never spoke to us again until they wanted to do heart surgery. I think sometimes that we carry on too long. And I think in those cases that we sometimes don't maybe listen to what parents are actually saying. This is Maggie Wallagora, an intensive care nurse for nine years in the McMaster neonatal unit. I think that we sometimes we steer parents towards our way of thinking and what we would like them to do. But I think we have to be open to what they're saying. And I don't think that happens in a lot of cases. If a parent says, I'd want no treatment, 
many times they're thought of as a not as a good parent, I guess is the word, or a difficult parent, or they don't understand that what what they're seeing is is part of prematurity and part of the treatment. But I think I'll just refer to Gaylene's case. If you if you um, weigh all the factors with the with an infant, and if every body system has become affected, parents can see that they can see and they can hear, and I think they need to be able to say, "I don't want no more treatment." Sometimes treatment is stopped. And in the last few years, the question of how and when such decisions should be made has become more public. British neonatologist Andrew Whitelaw has written up his experiences with discontinuing treatment for the medical journal The Lancet in an article called Death as an Option in Neonatal Intensive Care. If we come to a situation where there really does seem to be a choice between treatment to continue to save the baby's life or withdrawal of treatment to allow the baby to die because the future is so black and the baby seems either to be going to die anyway or if he or she should survive to have a miserable, joyless existence. Our approach would be to present this as a medical assessment to the parents and say that we think the treatment should be stopped. Uh, we would not uh, say to the parents, okay, this is the situation, do you want the treatment stopped so that your baby will die? Um, we, we, we don't put it to them that way because although some parents could accept that direct question, other parents, I think, would not like to live with the, the feeling, the responsibility, the guilt, perhaps, of giving the word that their child uh, should be allowed to die. And we listen to what the parents say, and uh, we in fact go along with it. Um, but we try to leave the parents with the feeling that the doctors have taken the responsibility and the guilt for the decision, but the parents were allowed to express their feelings and their views and in fact that they were followed. Uh, in most cases, the parents accept uh, the decision of the medical staff. In our uh, four-year series, it was um, over 90% of parents accepted uh, a medical decision to withdraw treatment. Um, and in the cases where the parents uh, could not accept this discussion of stopping treatment, we continued treatment. Uh, you can always reconsider it if you keep going, whereas if you uh, stop treatment and the child dies, that's uh, irrevocable. Behind the question of discontinuing treatment is the question of the handicaps that may result if treatment continues. The use of respirators, for example, can result in damage to the lungs, the airway, and the brain. A number of centers have now published figures on handicaps in babies born under a weight of 1,000 grams or roughly two pounds. In most of these studies, between a third and a half of all survivors showed some impairment, with severe incapacitating handicaps in the 15 to 20 percent range. All of the neonatologists I talked to described the present rate of severe handicap as the price we must pay for the increase in healthy survivors. 
and they were frank about the difficulty of reducing the rate of handicap. Dr. John Watts is the former director of the neonatal intensive care nursery at Chidoke McMaster Hospital, where Jean-André Levesque was hospitalized. He says that the problem is trying to predict who will be handicapped and who won't. The biggest problem of decision-making with the newborn is that you're always dealing with some degree of uncertainty. Even if you can be certain of the likelihood, the risk for a given baby, you may be able to say with great confidence, this particular baby at this particular birth weight with this particular problem has a 70% chance, let's say, of a severe handicap. But you can't, of course, say this baby is in the right 30% or the wrong 70%. So uncertainty exists in, in two ways. First, you're never certain that that 70 figure is absolutely correct. And second, if you are, you don't know which side of the equation that particular baby is going to turn out on. Even if you could tell that, in the long term, the way in which that baby is brought up is probably going to be an even more important determining factor than the problems that occur in the, in the newborn period. I have seen children with severe cerebral palsy, with major uh, hydrocephalus, who have gone on to live extraordinarily normal lives because of what their parents or other people who've been looking after them have been able to do for them. I think we know a little bit more about what things predict death or very bad outcomes, but only a little bit more. This is Dr. Robin White, a colleague of Dr. Watts and his successor as director of the McMaster Intensive Care Nursery. You can do an ultrasound scan and, uh, and look at the extent of bleeding in the brain. But the relationship between those scans and outcome is, is still very inaccurate. For example, there is a certain kind of bleeding into, into a child's brain, in, which occurs with the very, very small babies. And we know that a half of children who have that kind of disastrous form of bleeding will have some fairly severe form of handicap. Now, 50% is a terrible risk of a major handicap. But how do you take a decision about withdrawing care on a 50% risk if the other 50% is survival without handicap? Or even if 25% is really survival confident survival with, without handicap. And are you allowed to uh, forfeit that 25% of intact survivors to avoid your 50% major handicap outcomes? We're not really the people that can answer that, but I don't think so. I don't think that we are allowed to terminate care on that kind of probability of major handicap. Clearly, there is a risk. Perhaps it's a cost worth paying. But the question is, who pays? Laura Skye is a filmmaker who's just completed a film called To Hurt and to Heal. It's a study of the ethical dilemmas involved in neonatal and pediatric intensive care. During the two and a half years that she worked on the film, 
she became convinced that it's a cost which must be borne by society as a whole and not just the parents. I came to think that sometimes the baby survives, but the family perishes in the aftermath of the attempts to treat or to save a very severely impaired child. We live in a society right now where there's far more money in critical care for neonates than there is available to families who are have chosen to deal with a severely handicapped person at home. So what happens is that families feel abandoned. One such family is portrayed in Laura Skye's film. Their son spent his first six months on a respirator in neonatal intensive care. His treatment caused severe lung and airway damage, and he eventually required a tracheotomy so that he now breathes through a tube in his throat which requires frequent suctioning. That's the machine you can hear in the background. He also requires continuous oxygen. His parents now provide him with what amounts to 24 hours a day intensive care at home. So far, they have qualified for only 20 hours a week of nursing assistance from the Ontario government's home care program. No one ever said to us, you know, do you want to continue or do you want to just let things go and see what happens? No one ever said that to us. Um, a few times when he was really, really sick and things were really touch and go, we thought, is it fair? Is it worth putting a child through everything he's going through? I mean, tubes everywhere. He's not breathing. A machine is doing his breathing. You know, what? we just kept thinking, what's going to happen? Good boy. And you just have to wonder if, by any slim chance, he gets out of this and he, he is alive. What's it going to be like for him afterwards? Is, you know, what kind of life is a child going to have after going through all of that? There's got to be some damage somewhere, even if you can't see it. You don't feel like you have time to be a mummy and a daddy, you know? You feel like you're a nurse, an OT, a PT, an RT. There is no more time left to be a mummy and daddy, you know? And yet you have to try and make it and, and let him live as normally as he can. When he has a rough night, we are up constantly. Like, we don't sleep. We're up anyways. How often do you have to wake up on a normal night? I'm up every hour, checking the equipment. He can't make any vocal sounds. All he does is, as you can hear, cough and, and gag. So we're... You know, we're pretty well always running on empty, so you can't be guaranteed you're going to hear him to wake up if he did start talking. So we just pray and hope that every hour we get up, it's the right hour. It's the right time of that hour that he's not in distress or, you know. What's the limit of what you can do, do you think? The limit of how far we can go, we're doing it. I, I couldn't see us doing any more than we're doing, to be honest. The parents whole lives now exist through the care of this child, uh, economically, um, socially, personally. Their lives have become defined and determined by the needs of this child to the exclusion of, say, of any kind of normal. They don't get to go to movies. <laughs> I mean, they don't get to go out for dinner on a Saturday night. But it's also changed the structure of their friendships because many of their friends can't tolerate or can't handle the child and what has hap what the family has to do to maintain the child. So they're very isolated. 
They're economically enormously vulnerable uh, in a completely inadequate situation. And the support they receive from the community is zil well, it's very little. It's v it's it's uh, almost criminally little. Sometimes I wish that the doctors and the administrators of these units would go home and spend a week, two days, one day, living the life that these families live in the care of their children, trying to care for their children. Because it seems to me that there has to be a continuum of responsibility between saving a child and maintaining a child and maintaining the family. Because for all the best intentions, there are families now who are perishing under the weight of this impossible responsibility. Attention has to be paid to them. They're asking for us to be able to honor the commitment we made to them when we saved them in the first place. There was somebody who said that, that the handicapped survivor is the price one pays for having as few ghosts who would not have been handicapped as possible looking over your shoulder. Dr. John Watts. There is a limit to the obligations of any one individual person. I can't, as a neonatologist, carry on my shoulders the responsibility for ensuring that there are adequate uh, facilities for the care of parents and the care of children who have problems throughout southern Ontario. I can do a limited amount towards that. It would be totally wrong of me to ignore it, but I think it would be equally wrong for me to become paranoid that I wasn't doing absolutely everything for every single baby. Uh, I have to find a, a livable ground. It may be done partly by giving radio interviews, all right? I think it may come down on occasions to taking political action because that's where the, the answers to a lot of our problems lie. It's as important for me to push for appropriate funding in areas where I think it's necessary for handicapped children. And I think I have some moral obligation to be involved in that sort of thing. But I can't do everything. This program is about dilemmas in neonatal intensive care. And I'm very conscious in presenting it that most of the stories I've told so far have been distressing ones with unhappy endings. There are happy endings, too. My own daughter, as I said at the beginning, weighed under 1,000 grams at birth, the group at highest risk. Today, she is a healthy, happy nine-year-old, and I can't imagine a world without her in it. But even so, Katie's three months in intensive care were an agonizing time for her and for my wife and I. Many of our problems were caused by the environment itself and the way in which it cut us off from our baby. One American researcher has coined a word to describe the environment of a neonatal intensive care unit. Paranoiagenic, this person calls it, and the word is apt. The problem is not just the physical environment, the heat, the bright lights, the alarms, the atmosphere of constant crisis, and the difficulty of seeing the baby as a baby and not just part of the machinery. Worse for me were the problems of working out a relationship with an ever-changing staff. We felt excluded from decisions about Katie's care and treatment. We had trouble getting information, but we feared antagonizing people on whom our baby was dependent paranoiagenic indeed. 
In an intensive care unit, the concerns of the staff and the concerns of parents often clash. They are relating to the same baby, but as Galen Levesque found, each gives the experience a very different meaning. At one point, uh, when we were in there, they had to change his IV, and they had trouble finding a spot, a vein, because they're so tiny. And I stood there and waited, and I watched the clock. I couldn't look at him. It, it hurt me too much, you know. And I, 25 minutes I stood there while they poked and poked and poked and poked and tried to find another, eye, another vein that wouldn't collapse. And as I stood there, I wept. I, I didn't cry out loud, but I, tears were coming down my face. And then I spent some time with him, and, and then I left. And the next day when I came in, the nurse on duty said, oh, it's written here in the chart that um, you're a little upset with us for something and uh, that uh, you're a little unhappy about something. Uh, what, what's the problem? And I said, well, there's no problem. And she said, well, it's marked on the chart that you're, you're very upset and we want to know what the problem is. And I said, wait a minute. You mean because I cried? I mean, it just seemed to me to be such a natural thing to do when you're standing there, you can't help your baby, you can't even comfort him because they need his whole body to search for needles. It's not like I could hold his hand while they looked somewhere else. And, uh, oh, I don't know, I, I just sort of had that feeling that I had to be careful of their feelings all the time. And it was a little stress that I really didn't need at that time. I think we have to recognize that when we have a more intimate type of nursing, that involves a parent, infant, and you, that it's going to be a different relationship. Nurse Maggie Walagora. It's not going to be, I just meet you, and we talk on the surface of numbers of what's surrounding that infant. You might go to coffee with that family, and you shouldn't feel that you're going to be uh, reprimanded for being too intimate, because that's part of that role. Maybe a family needs to talk outside of a nursery setting where they can put a little different perspective on it, get away from the situation. And I think being able to sit and talk with the family candidly, that helps in relieving some of the turmoil and emotions that you're feeling. If the fa you often find the families are, if you're being very candid, families usually will open up and respond to you. Ask a parent, if you're just brand new, where do you see this situation with your baby? And often that'll open up parents. Or sometimes just standing there and saying, have you cried? Yeah. It opens the door. Some parents don't feel they can't cry. They have to be strong in the situation. You have to open doors so that families can respond. They can state what they're feeling. I think it's important to really let parents talk and have a choice in treatments. When he first went in, they said, we have a big staff, but for really critically ill infants, we try to keep the same nurses uh, on a fairly regular basis so that they get to know the baby and you get to know them and to trust them. And we were quite encouraged by that because there were a couple of nurses that we liked very much and who seemed to be able to talk to us uh, as human beings. 
But then it didn't turn out that way. Every time we went in, it was a different nurse, and, and she didn't know who we were, and we didn't know who she was. And, and we found that really disruptive, very disruptive. The nurse said um, there was one nurse who always made a point, no matter what baby she had, of coming over to us and, and sort of patting us on the back and saying, you know, either sharing with us a joy of a, a little improvement or sharing with us the despair of, a, uh, of some kind of lack of improvement. But um, the nurse that we had at the very end, oh, I mean, she, I felt like, like God had sent her to us. She was just wonderful. She uh, seemed to sense when to leave and when to stay. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if she was there. I, I think she must have been there when the baby died. Maybe there's some kind of regulation where a nurse should be on hand. But she stayed behind us and said nothing. Uh, and then when the baby died, I turned around. When I saw the monitor was flat and I sensed that he was, you know, gone, I turned around and she stood there and she's, I said, can we take the tubes out now? And she said, oh, uh, not till the doctor comes. I'll go get the doctor. So I guess some part of me knew she was there, but she didn't intrude at all. And when she came back, she had, her eyes were all red and I knew she had wept, you know, and oh, it just made me feel like somebody else saw he was a human being. And, and I appreciated that. And I said to her, she said, if you and your husband want to go in the other room, I'll clean the baby up and get him ready for you. And I said, no, I want to help. And she said, okay. So I let her take the tube out of the nose, but I took out the IVs and, and stopped the bleeding. And oh, it just made me feel more complete to know that at last, I was doing something for my baby. I mean, sure, he was dead then, but I had the opportunity to, to, to pull out those awful needles that had been torturing him and, and to stop the bleeding and to wash his little face and to help dress him. I mean, she was helping me. We were helping each other. But there was that kind of respect that this was my baby and that, that I was, um, that it was okay for me to be there. After Jean-André Lévesque died, his parents obtained permission to take him to the funeral home themselves. On their way there, they stopped at home. My two-year-old daughter was upstairs in bed, and she heard we were home. She said, Mommy, Mommy, and then she saw I was holding something, and she said, Baby? And I said, Yes, baby. She said, Baby, no hospital? And I said, No. And she came running down, and she said, Oh, baby's sleeping. And I said, yes, the baby's asleep, dear. He's sleeping with God now. Oh. And she leaned over and she kissed him. And my seven-year-old son, oh, he was six then. My six-year-old son was at a friend's house. And my husband went and got him. And my husband said, now, the baby has died and mommy's got him home. And my son said, oh, is she going to be crying? I don't want to go home if she's going to be crying. And, and my husband said, no, she's not crying. So I came in, and I was holding the baby on the couch. And my son said, that's the baby, isn't it? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, he's dead, isn't he? And I said, yes, he is, dear. And he said, oh, no. And I said, it's OK, honey. He's happy now. Come and see him. The last time my son had seen the baby, the baby had tubes everywhere. And my son couldn't stand to look at it, and he was the noise and the lights, and my son was so distracted and so upset, and while we were there, another baby had died, and the parents had gone hysterical, and it was a 
terrible, terrible experience for him. And he was terrified. And he said, I'm never going back to see the baby again. So I said, honey, the last time you saw the baby, it was, it was awful. But I said, now he looks beautiful. Come on and see him. So he came over and he looked at him and he said, oh, mommy, he's beautiful. I said, yes. I said, he's your brother and he is beautiful. He said, he looks like he's sleeping. And I said, yes, he does, doesn't he? He said, he's in heaven now, isn't he? And I said, yes, he is. He said, boy, when I die and go to heaven, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to search everywhere till I find that baby. And I said, honey, when you get to heaven, you won't have to search. The baby will be standing there waiting for you, and he'll welcome you. And he said, oh, that's great. He said, you know, this baby looks so wonderful, and I'm so happy. Can I call my friends over to see him? And I said, oh, no, dear, that's a really nice thought, but... This is, you know, a time just for our family to be together. My father was here, luckily, and my father came over and, and held the baby and kissed him. And we all got, my son got to hold the baby. We all got to hold him and to kiss him goodbye. And, and I felt more complete having brought him home. My house feels more special to me now that he has been here. The kind of healing that Gaylene Levesque and her family felt when they brought the baby home came out of their finally having the baby and being able to share the experience of loving him and grieving for him within their family. So much of the pain that families feel around a premature baby in intensive care comes from the disruption of that family's need to care for the baby. Does it have to be this way? Do we really know what would happen if mothers carried and cared for their premature babies in a more normal way? Could technology supplement and support a mother's care rather than replacing it? Interesting answers to these questions are suggested by a project in Bogota, Colombia, where mothers are actually caring for quite tiny premature babies on an outpatient basis at home. Vivian Wahlberg is a Swedish researcher and nurse midwife who works out of the Karolinska Hospital in Stockholm. She has twice visited Bogota to learn about this project. Recently, she was in Canada to receive an honorary degree from the University of Calgary, and she told me that her interest in alternative care for premature babies had begun even before she went to Bogota. I had been to India several years before, and I had seen in small villages in the south of India uh, premature babies. Uh, it was far from any hospital or any intensive care units, so the mothers, they carried those babies very close and uh, in this warm climate, I was not uh, surprised that babies around one kilo survived. But what surprised me was that uh, the babies were breastfed um, already, th these small babies around one kilo. And when I came back to uh, and met the physicians at Karolinska uh, and spoke, uh, told them about that, they couldn't believe me. Several years later, Vivian Wahlberg got a chance to prove she wasn't making it up. She saw a story in a Swedish newspaper about the San Juan de Dios Hospital in Bogota, where two pediatricians were reportedly sending babies a thousand grams and smaller home with their mothers. They were called kangaroo babies because they were being carried skin to skin by their mothers. They were receiving medical care on an outpatient basis through a UNICEF-supported clinic called La Casita, the little house. Vivian Wahlberg decided to go and see for herself. 
there are many babies uh, under 1,000 grams uh, who leave the hospital with their mother within 24 hours. And uh, the first day when I visited this La Casita, I met uh, the first mother. She had a baby 760 grams. And uh, after the examination, the physician just tucked the baby inside her blouse and she went outside the door and I was confused. I said, what will happen now? And uh, the doctor said, well, she will take one of the city's buses home to her village in the mountains. And I couldn't believe it. But uh, just half an hour later, there was another mother with a baby around 1,000 grams. And uh, I saw several mothers doing the same. And then the following weeks, I had the opportunity to go with a community nurse out to those places and uh, visit uh, the mothers and the families in their poor villages and homes. And I could see that uh, they survived and, uh, and uh, they seemed to be very happy too. And now I've been down again. I came back just a month ago and I met several of the small babies now around two years old and uh, uh, running around on the floor and speaking a little bit. So it seems uh, uh, okay for them. The kangaroo method of premature care is now being tried in various centers in Europe. There are trials going on at the Hammersmith Hospital in London, in several centers in Sweden, and there is interest in other European countries as well. Early results from the studies that are going on are very positive. And the key to this success, Vivian Wahlberg believes, is skin-to-skin -skin contact. If you uh, take the baby naked and put them skin-to-skin, -skin, you have all the receptors on the skin, and this contact stimulates immediately. They give, it gives signals to the big brain, and you will have... Um, uh, stimulation of uh, breathing center and of several hormones and um, I believe that the mother and baby they create energy together and uh, as soon as a baby is in a stable condition I think it's time to try this and we have not had any not even one case where a baby has had a cyanotic attack during kangaroo method, but we have seen several when we just take out the baby dressed and put it in the mother's arms. So it seems that uh, when you put the baby skin to skin, it helps to stabilize also the breathing and uh, the body temperature and the weight gain. Everything seems to be better and more stable. But uh, first of all, we can't take out very sick babies. We must uh, choose babies who are in stable conditions, but we can shorten their incubator stay with many, many weeks. And the, the human incubator, what I want to call it, <laughs> It's a simple and a cheap and it's a natural alternative to all the technological and artificial aids in an intensive care unit. I think we, 
we must stop and we must reevaluate if we are doing the best uh, when we I think we overuse our technology a little bit today. So this uh, has come as a good alternative. How widely the kangaroo method can be used is still unclear. The requirement that babies be in stable condition and able to breathe on their own without oxygen obviously rules out the really problematic cases. Though it should be stressed that we really don't know what would happen if all babies were cared for from birth in this way. But in any case, it still promises to drastically shorten incubator care and hospital stays, improve lactation, add a much-needed element of normalcy to the intensive care environment, and above all, as this final story from Vivian Wahlberg shows, to restore to mothers the central place in their baby's care. I was invited to Roma to uh, introduce this project, and after I had given the lesson and showed uh, my two videotapes in uh, the university auditoria, uh, we went together to the neonatal unit and uh, we found one mother sat beside her little baby um, around one kilo and uh, the physician asked the mother, uh, he said, we have just heard uh, a presentation about the kangaroo method and where they tuck a baby inside the blouse and uh, we think that your baby is in uh, the right physical condition, would you mind or would you like to have your baby inside your blouse? And she just, it was a fantastic moment. She looked around and she said, me, I've just touched my baby with my finger. Do you mean I should have the whole little body inside my blouse? Yes, uh, if you want, we will try. And uh, uh, it happened that the nurses there were two nurses who had been in this neonatal unit for more than 20 years, but they were so scared to change uh, a type of care. They believed that this was an alternative, but they said, no, we can't do this. It's so curious to take the baby outside the incubator. Couldn't we ask the Swedish nurse so she could do it because we want to see it? And I think this shows very clearly that... Uh, their attitudes or their feelings or how much they are into the system. But they were curious anyhow. And I helped, I took out the little baby and I tucked it inside the mother's blouse. And this was a fantastic moment. I could see her bodily reaction. And uh, she just, she said, spontaneously or oh, I have a strong feeling it goes like a stream from my womb through my whole body up to my eyes and she started to cry and uh, all the staff around they were also crying because it was so absolutely fantastic to see and the mother also said after a while now at last I am delivered Heroic Measures, Dilemmas in the Care of Sick Children, originally broadcast in June 1987, was prepared and presented by David Cayley. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk, 
producer Jill Eisen. Our thanks to Jutta Mason for the use of her interview with Gaylene Levesque and to Laura Skye for the excerpt from her film To Hurt and to Heal and to thank both as well for their research in the series. Tomorrow night, you'll only hear the second and final program in this series if you happen to live in the Pacific region. But in any case, a printed transcript is available for $5. Send a check or money order to CBC Enterprises, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W, 1E6. For ideas, I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. <laughs>